Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 15. Last week, I spent most of the episode on the Jordan Valley, the place where the lower Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, and also where John did all of his baptizing, including that of Jesus. When I wrapped up that episode, I told of Moses revealing to the Israelites that the land they were to inhabit had plentiful copper and iron. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning the first of what will likely be two parts on the copper, bronze, and iron ages, periods in history defined by man's learning to use these materials. And with that, let's get started. As I continued to work my way through the book of Deuteronomy, I ran across something in chapter 9 I've mentioned before, but haven't covered, and that's the cast image of a calf. Of course, I also mentioned this when I covered Exodus, but covering the history of casting metal objects completely escaped me then, not to make excuses. But it is one of those things that's taken for granted in our modern society, but required much more effort then. And this is an old technology that dovetails nicely with where I wrapped up the last episode, when the text mentioned both iron and copper. So I'll begin this episode. Well, really the majority of it will be a general overview of the Copper Age, which will then allow me to cover what metal casting was likely like to the Israelites. Which, believe it or not, isn't terribly different than the way metal objects are cast today. Objects like the engine block and cylinder heads on your car. But I'm getting well ahead of myself. First, the Copper Age. Sometimes you'll see the Copper Age called the Chalcolithic Age, and in some cases, it's considered the last part of the Stone Age, or the first part of the Bronze. And the important thing to remember about all of the ages is that the name refers to which tools were dominant. Stone tools, then copper, then bronze, then iron. Another important consideration is that the transition from one to the next didn't occur at a single time. It was more fluid. And when that transition occurred, varied greatly based on geography. Though the variation did decrease as travel and trade, and therefore technological spread, increased. As the name suggests, during the Copper Age, copper was the primary metal of use. But what does that mean? A couple of things. In many areas, raw copper was found lying around. But in other regions, the ore needed to be smelted to yield the usable metal. Of course, in areas where it was found raw, then the age arrived sooner, at least the beginning stage. Smelting is a different story, with the earliest evidence of smelting on the globe coming from Serbia, so up the coast a bit from the Middle East. And it would be just over a thousand years before the copper would be combined with tin to form bronze and mark the start of that age. But I'm getting ahead of myself, again. It's thought that the first use of metal of any kind was lead and was probably in the Middle East. This uncovered lead was in jewelry. What's interesting about this is that raw natural lead, at least in this area, is rather rare. So this may indicate that the lead, at least in this case, was derived from smelting, or trade. How would that have happened? 
Unfortunately, there is no direct evidence of this. Why? Well, since writing had yet to be invented, it was prehistory, and therefore there was no written record of how it came about. But of course we know that it had to start somewhere. What we have in the absence of evidence are speculative theories. Though the most widely accepted theory does make a great deal of sense, in order to understand it, we need to back up a bit in history. Copper is the eighth most abundant metal in the Earth's crust and is found across the globe. It's also easy to work. If found in its pure state, perhaps as a nugget, simple hammering, let's say with stone tools, is all that's required to transform it to a usable object, like a bead or a pen. Its reddish-brown hue also makes it noticeable, prompting use in jewelry. Though there is a drawback. Such a technique is called cold hammering since, well, there's no heat involved. But this only works for small objects. In larger objects, it tends to crack when cold hammered. These items would need to be heated first, or cast. More on that process in a bit. Gold, though, is more malleable. But the text does tell us that the calf was cast. At least it does in Deuteronomy. In Exodus, in the New Revised Standard, we're told it was from a mold, though the footnote says it was fashioned with a graving tool, as does the King James. And a graving tool is used to carve something. Think engraving. So it may have been carved from gold. Exodus in the NIV says it was cast. Deuteronomy is a little clearer, with all three versions saying it was either cast are made from molten metal. So, why did the Copper Age occur first? It's much softer than iron and very malleable, meaning the metal could easily be beaten into shape. If this is done at room temperature, it would create more durable edges as the metal's crystals align to the mechanical stress. Compared to other ore-based metals, it's easier to mine and process. It's also more durable, and less brittle than stone, the material it's slowly replaced, making it the better choice for tools, weapons, and jewelry, though that last one may depend more on the taste of the wearer. But, and especially in the beginning, it was rare and expensive to smelt, so in many cases stone tools continued to be used, even throughout much of the Copper Age. And there was something else and it's the same thing that has happened throughout history. Those tribes and kingdoms that were more technologically advanced would defeat and enslave those that weren't. And in this case, those that had access to and harnessed this advanced metal would conquer those that had not. In the ancient world, there were seven primary metals. Obviously, especially since I've already mentioned them, there were copper, tin, bronze, iron, and lead. There was also mercury, and the metal calf was cast from gold. Of these seven, only gold was regularly found in its natural, uncombined state. Copper was sometimes found this way, but that was rare, and those pieces tended to be small. The rest of the list are normally found as either ore or combined with other elements forming carbonates, sulfides, or oxides and these names should give away the elements they were combined with. In this region, well, really throughout Africa, Asia, and Europe, 
The first metals smelted were tin and lead. And the reason for this is simple. Tin melts at about 450 Fahrenheit, 232 Celsius, and lead at 622 Fahrenheit, 328 Celsius. Really low temperatures. For reference, wood ignites at a minimum of 356 Fahrenheit, 180 Celsius, may be higher depending on factors such as the density and water content of the wood, and it burns hotter still. So, a wood fire can easily get hot enough to melt lead and tin. The heat does something else. In the case of raw, natural copper, heating it to these temperatures and then letting it slowly cool does something called annealing the metal. Essentially, it reduces the hardness of the metal so it can be hammered into larger objects, like a bracelet. In this process, the metal's crystalline structure would arrange in a more homogeneous structure and the copper was much softer and easier to shape. Good for jewelry or coinage. It's small lessons like this that when learned over time allowed the people to use such metals for more and more things. Other processes were established that resulted in harder copper and better materials for things like striking tools, axes for example, and weapons of war. Backing up a bit, adding another heat source to the fire like coal and melting these two metals, lead and tin, is easily within the grasp of even the most rudimentary hunter-gatherer. And sooner or later, a fortunate accident. But that still doesn't explain how smelting came about. The theory behind that is that as society developed and people became less nomadic, they built fire pits or hearths or fireplaces. And these would have initially been constructed from whatever materials were lying around, including stones containing lead and tin. Next thing you know, in an ancient person, let's just call him Utsi, notices the flowing metal and begins to manipulate it. Why I'm choosing that name will become apparent later. Eventually, that manipulation leads to a casting process, and the first evidence of cast lead was uncovered in Turkey, actually called Anatolia, and dates to about 6500 BC. Like other such discoveries in the Middle East, this too is in the form of jewelry, in this case, lead beads. As for tin, and especially in this region, it's less commonly found even as an ore are combined with other elements. Lead though is a common metal, so why isn't there a lead age? Lead, especially in that era, wasn't particularly useful. It's just far too soft to be used in tools or as a weapon, except it is heavy. So, in a sling, it could be useful, but not really any different than a rock. Later, the Greeks and Romans would use lead for their water pipes and sometimes as a mortar between stones, owing to it being easily cast and shaped. But even with all that, still not useful enough to revolutionize society. The same goes for gold. It too is too soft for practical purposes, and throughout history, at least until very recently, it was used almost exclusively for ornamentation or for trade. And recently, electronics frequently rely on microscopically thin layers of gold due to its great electrical conductivity. 
But back to smelting. The earliest smelters were simple. The Sumerians, when they first started smelting, did nothing more than build shallow pits where the ore was thrown over burning charcoal. The next stage in the smelting technology required more, specifically more heat, but not just from a fire, but with added oxygen. Hieroglyphs show that the Egyptians also had this problem, but solved it by using a long tube to blow air into the furnace. Next came directed wind, meaning that if the wind was relatively constant and from a predictable direction, it could be channeled to the fire. After this, there was the technology of bellows. All of these simply to add more air to the fire and increase the heat production. But what does this do, and how was it useful with copper? Malachite is a common copper ore and is chemically known as copper carbonate hydroxide. Think about those words. There's copper, carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. When heated to between 500 and 660 Fahrenheit, 250 and 350 Celsius, it decomposes to copper oxide, carbon dioxide, and water vapor. Obviously, we're interested in the copper oxide. So, in that compound, all that's left are copper and oxygen. Next, the superheated copper oxide is exposed to carbon monoxide. With the effect of pulling the oxygen from the copper oxide and combining it with the carbon monoxide to form carbon dioxide. Where would this necessary carbon monoxide come from? The fire used to superheat the copper oxide, and in the case of the Sumerians, the charcoal in that fire. Overall, it's a relatively simple process and a simple process is one of the precursors to an accidental discovery. Maybe I should retitle the podcast as the Christian History and Chemistry Podcast. Of course, at the time, they didn't understand all of the chemistry behind it, but they didn't need to. All they needed to do was to learn the process well enough to replicate it. And the smelting process didn't vary much through the copper, bronze, and iron ages. Though the ores would change, and as time progressed, the smelters would learn to add other metals to create new alloys. Metals like tin added to copper that formed bronze. In both the Middle East and Europe, the Copper Age began in the late 5th millennium BC and lasted for about a thousand years, when the regions transitioned to the early Bronze Age. Of course, in order to smelt copper from ore, it required sources of that ore, and the Timna Valley in the Araba Desert provided one such source. This valley is south of the Dead Sea and north of the Gulf of Aqaba, and was one of the areas the ancient Israelites wandered, though that was much later. Uncovered archaeological evidence shows copper ore being mined there as early as 7000 BC, but the mining required new technology too like how to break rocks apart when all you have are tools made from the same rocks. What these miners learned was that if the mine rocks are heated, usually with a wood or coal fire, then tepid water is poured over the rocks. They become brittle and can easily be reduced from hammering to manageable size. And the hammering was usually with stone tools, typically made from hard rocks accessible to the miners like beach or river pebbles. 
These small stones would usually have a groove carved in the middle for where a rope was used to tie it to a wood handle, providing leverage. For finer and smaller work, the miners would use picks and scrapes made of bone and antlers. About the same time as the ore was being mined, copper tool artifacts began popping up throughout the region. And while these started as simple tools, they progressed to items like copper axe heads. These tools would be used for thousands of years. In 1991, the frozen, very well-preserved remains of a man dating to around 3300 BC was found in the Alps between Austria and Italy. He's been dubbed Utsi the Iceman, and he was carrying with him a copper axe. Maybe he had something to grind. Both he and his axe are believed to have been untouched for 5,400 years. This means he was walking in the area carrying this axe over a thousand years before Abraham lived. Hard to imagine. More on him in a minute. The development of this technology is also thought to have led to other societal changes. Things such as larger villages, fortifications, walled cities, long-distance trade, large-scale changes that warrant the terming of the period as an age. In Mesopotamia, the use and smelting of copper was employed by the Sumerians and their neighbors. And copper showed up there between 3 and 4,000 BC, and the use of it continued for quite some time. In the early 20th century, the tomb of a royal named Huabi was uncovered. She was thought to have been a queen in the first dynasty of Ur, dating to around 2600 BC. This tomb was uncovered in what is today extreme southeast Iraq. Among the many grave goods, she was buried with a sled designed to be used on the local roads. And since it was a sled, with runners, not wheels, it's thought to have been designed for use on sand. This sled was drawn by two oxen wearing large copper collars, while the reins had copper studs. A Sumerian soldier, who is thought to have marched alongside the sled, wore a copper helmet. Among the more gruesome theories about her burial place is that she was entombed with at least 74 attendants, all adorned in jewelry of gold, silver, and lapis lazuli. It's believed these servants had been celebrating an elaborate feast just prior to being buried together. But back to copper. From Mesopotamia, coppersmithing spread to Egypt. Long before Joseph, Jacob, and family made the trip to the Nile Valley and Delta. And the arrival of copper in Egypt is believed to predate the first Egyptian dynasty, who began rule around 3100 BC. The use of metals such as gold, silver, copper, and eventually bronze, is believed to have spurred Egyptian civilization forward. They would get their ore from areas bordering the Red Sea. The Egyptians grasped copper smelting quickly, but then the technology peaked, to the point that artifacts up to a thousand years in age difference bear a striking resemblance to each other. Though the Egyptians were using copper for water pipes as early as 2750 BC. To put this in context, in Genesis 10, Abraham traveled to Egypt. This was likely about 750 years after the Egyptians began using copper for pipes. Their smiths would make copper tools, and eventually bronze, tools such as saws and knives, 
household items such as dishes, trays, cooking utensils like ladles and tongs, and farming tools like sickles, some complete with serrated blades. And the impact of these farm tools cannot be overstated. More food with less human labor, allowing the surplus labor to focus on something else. Trade, carpentry, warfare, building pyramids. Essentially, agrarian society is becoming more specialized, one thing leading to the next. And this trend wasn't just seen in Mesopotamia or Egypt, but all across the globe, as copper tools became more commonplace. As people and societies discovered copper and the means to extract it, they experienced massive demographic, economic, and cultural explosions, with social layers or hierarchies being cemented during this period. And this is why we call these things ages, not merely trends. All of this gets me to the casting process, like what is seen in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Obviously, gold was cast into objects. I covered earlier how gold is one of the few elements found in its natural state, which is one of the reasons it was also one of the first things to be cast. Another quality is that compared to many of the other metals, like iron, it melts at a low temperature, but not nearly as low as tin or lead. Gold melts at just under 2,000 Fahrenheit, which is just over 1,000 Celsius. And this is about the same temperature as copper, and just hotter than bronze. Iron, though, requires an additional nearly 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, over 500 Celsius. So, gold doesn't need to be as hot as iron. But still, these are temperatures that you just can't get from a campfire. Enter the furnace at least figuratively, not literally, like Daniel. The earliest furnaces were of a simple construction, likely made of stone. The first models may have used directed wind to introduce more oxygen and make things hotter. But before long, bellows were invented and allowed an even higher heat. Also, it didn't take long for stone furnaces to be replaced by ceramic models. So, now we can account for the heat necessary, and in the case of gold, we have the raw material. But we still need the casting methods, or more commonly called the molds. Early on, casting used what is called the lost wax method, especially for intricate work. Wax, commonly beeswax, would be carved into whatever the finished product was supposed to be. In the case of the golden calf, if this method was used, a block of beeswax would have been carved into a calf. This representation is sometimes called a positive. Then, that mold is packed in another material, like sand, and formed into a block. A few holes through the sand to the wax are added, and the sand block is heated. With the heat, the wax melts and drains out through the holes, creating a negative. Through these holes, the gold was poured and then allowed to slowly cool. When it had cooled enough, the sand could be knocked off, leaving the cast image. Simple enough. For less intricate work, a negative mold could have been made out of a material like clay, usually done in two halves. The soft clay would then be fired in a furnace to harden it, after this, the two halves could be brought together and the melted metal poured in. 
then cooled and the halves either separated or the clay broken off. This is very similar to the way many modern engine blocks are made, though some engines use what's called a lost foam method, which is really similar to the wax method. The first cast objects were likely made in Mesopotamia around 4000 BC and used the wax method. As time progressed, the casters got better to the point that an intricate cast copper frog dating to around 3200 BC has been discovered. But cast copper wasn't just for ornamentation, as the older Utsi axe head attests to. There were household goods, like those axe heads, also weapons, like spear tips, and religious artifacts. In the case of gold, many of these can be found in the tabernacle. For example, the Ark of the Covenant is said, in Exodus 25, to have been made from shatim wood overlaid with gold. This is usually thought of as gold hammered into leaf. And the rest of the ark had a molding of gold, maybe a casting, all around it. There were also four cast gold rings. A mercy seat of pure gold, but no instructions on how it was made. Though considering it was pure and not leaf on top of wood, it was probably cast. Then there were two cherubim of hammered gold, other pieces in their tabernacle were similarly constructed, with both hammering and casting, and this was during the Copper Age, so it's likely the same furnaces were being used for that material. And before moving on, a little more about the mummified Iceman found in the Alps. Besides his axe, he had on him several other smaller copper tools. The copper axe is made from what is sometimes called arsenic copper. And this is because, well simply, besides copper, the ore has arsenic in it. We of course know that arsenic can be used as a poison, and this is because it's a metal that affects the body in a detrimental way. But when found in copper, it can make the metal stronger, giving it a higher tensile strength, a great quality in an axe. His axe was likely hardened further by repeated hammering while being forged. By doing this, it wouldn't shatter on impact and could be softened by heating and rehardened to maintain its cutting edge. Utsi may himself have been a coppersmith, as his hair had high concentrations of copper and arsenic, which likely would have only been attained through repeated exposure to copper smelting. And Utsi provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the Bronze and Iron Ages. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.